Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. I'm joined today by Heather Schofield from the University of Pennsylvania. Heather, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And we will be talking about a paper that is joint work with Pedro Bessone, Gautam Rao, Frank Schilbach and Matty Thoma. And the paper is called Sleepless in Chennai, the consequences of improving sleep among the urban poor. Could you briefly explain what the paper is about? Sure. The paper is about how sleep impacts the lives of the urban poor. There's really an enormous body of literature that exists already on sleep, but the majority of this literature falls into two major divisions. The first are studies of acute sleep deprivation um, in labs in developed countries. So they'll bring people into the lab and they'll keep them up for a few days and then look at short-run cognitive, short-run changes in cognitive function and biomarkers. And the second type of study in this space uh, are really correlational studies, which primarily focus on correlations between sleep and health, controlling for as many confounding factors as possible. But despite the fact that there's quite a bit of work of this type, we actually know almost nothing about how the urban poor in developing countries sleep, whether their sleep can be improved and what the consequences of sleeping more might be for economic outcomes that we, we would care about as economists, like productivity at work, um, important decisions like savings rates, longer term health outcomes as estimated in a very causal way. So those are the questions that we tackle in this project. Okay, and could you briefly explain the experiment design? So what, what just sure. in a couple of sentences, what you've been doing? Yeah, so the experiment is, as you've already implied, a randomized control trial. In the study, uh, which takes place in Chennai, which is a large city in the south of India, we employ actually 450 individuals as a part of their participation in the study as data entry workers uh, for a period of a month. And a subset of those individuals are randomly assigned to receive interventions to improve sleep. So one set of interventions is geared towards improving nighttime sleep in their homes, where we give them devices to improve the sleep environment. So things like eye shades, earplugs, and a mattress. And cross-randomized with that is an afternoon nap in the study office. And then we look at the downstream outcomes of that improved sleep. So we have very good measurements of their productivity coming from the fact that we employ them as data entry workers. And we also look at different features of decision-making and economic preferences, as well as health outcomes. And we collect those over time throughout the study for the course of the month that they're enrolled. Very interesting. And um, you worked on quite a lot of projects that examine the interaction between poverty, health, and economic behavior. How did you end up working in this area on these topics? That's <laughs> a big question. I've been interested in these topics, I guess, for a long time. I grew up traveling a lot with my family, and I also did a degree in international public health before my economics PhD. And I think really those experiences helped me to see the importance of understanding the linkages between poverty, health, and economic behavior for both intellectual understanding and for policy. You know, understanding whether a person is who they are in some static sense or whether they're influenced by their circumstances in a more dynamic way has a lot of implications for how we think about and try to address poverty very broadly. Mm -hmm. And the project, for the project, you have four co-authors, which That's right. is yeah. quite a lot. How did you come to work with all of them? Yeah, it's, it's a big team. I think that seems to be becoming more common as field experiments get larger and more complex. So the project actually started quite a while ago when Frank and I were working together in grad school, and then Gautam joined fairly soon after that. And then really, you know, the study needed more time in the field and organization of an enormous amount of data that was coming in. 
So we actually brought on two stellar graduate students, uh, Maddie and Pedro, who you mentioned earlier as well. So, you know, I think despite it being a lot of people, we really needed that much time and intellectual input for the project. It's been great to work with everybody. It's a really engaging team. And and I think it's uh, come together really nicely in terms of team dynamics. Mm -hmm. And how did you you come up with the idea for this particular uh, project? You mentioned that you and Frank kind of started it and then the other people joined later on. So how was the idea development process like? I think it really came about from time in the field. One really kind of very striking thing that you'll often notice in India and many other developing countries is really how many people sleep in what seem to be nearly impossible circumstances, you know, on the median of a road in broad daylight, sprawled in the back of a cycle rickshaw, napping upright against a wall with traffic and people and noise all around. And I think it really made us kind of stop and think about how tired someone must be to sleep through those kind of environmental features. And that, you know, made us think about how much uh, sleep people might actually be getting in this circumstance and whether that could be impacting their productivity, health, decision making, these other downstream outcomes that we were interested in as well. So I think it really just came about from observation in the field of the striking circumstances in which you see people sleep and and what that probably implies for the amount of sleep that they're getting. And when you decide that you want to do something on the sleep of the urban poor and how that affects their productivity, did you immediately kind of have the experiment design in mind that you used right now or did the experiment design evolve over time? It's a, you know, I think the big picture question stayed fairly similar over time. But definitely the details of the design evolved substantially on on many dimensions. We considered a large number of potential designs because it's always difficult to know what would work best ex ante. So as a concrete example of that, what tasks should we use to measure productivity? You know, there's some obvious constraints. For example, you want a task that isn't contingent on other people's productivity or in which you have no ability to change your output in the short term, but that still leaves a lot of potential options that you could choose from. And so, you know, the details of how exactly we thought through each of those definitely changed over time as we would talk them through and try them out in the field and see how things would work and then understand the the real constraints. You know, I think there's always a, a very much a tension between what you would like in an ideal world and what ends up being feasible in practice. And so, you know, resolving those tensions was something that, that took a lot of iterations and, and definitely caused a number of changes in specifics of the design. But the, the initial idea that you wanted to employ people and treat their sleep, that was something that was there kind of right from the beginning? Oh. Certainly, I don't think we necessarily knew that we wanted to employ them. So we talked through other potential study designs as well. Should we try to find a profession in the real world where productivity is highly measurable? You know, so for example, I'd worked with cycle rickshaw drivers before, worked with flower stringers who are women who uh, make garlands out of jasmine. Um, There are a lot of these different professions that in fact exist and have features that would be appealing. But in the end, it turned out that we thought employing people was better because it gave us a greater ability to control other features of the day. So we could do things like offer the afternoon nap. Um, And it also ensured that we'd get high attendance if it's their full-time job. So there were a number of features that ended up making that the best option, but it certainly wasn't the only one that we considered. Interesting. And you pre-adjusted this experiment. What was your motivation to do this? Do you think it's standard practice to do this these days? That's a tricky question. Uh, We did pre-register the study, as you said, and I think there were 
few reasons for that. One was the kind of usual scientific reasons about concerns of publication bias and p-hacking and, and all of those things. And I think the uh, a second reason that was something that we considered heavily is that it's also quite useful in forcing us to think through certain aspects of the design and the analysis in quite a bit of detail. So I, I think there is kind of a, a benefit to the project of doing it as well, a discipline benefit of, of really giving a lot of thought to details. So there were a number of motivations to do it, and, and we definitely did go ahead with that. But I would caveat that by saying I, I don't think that the pre-registration process is perfect or that everybody necessarily would want to do it. The challenge that I really see in it is that you really learn an enormous amount by actually running the study. And often those are things that it's either very difficult or impossible to fully anticipate. And so a challenge that comes with the pre-registration is if this learning occurs and referees don't let you make some adjustment for that learning, it can often put you in a tough bind. So I think it is a very good general practice, but it, for the system to work and everyone to want to actually participate in it, it's going to be incumbent on referees and editors to also have some reasonable flexibility for things that are learned throughout the study. So you would say if you pre an experiment, it makes it harder to incorporate new ideas later on in the process and referees might ask you why you didn't mention this idea you already in the pre-registration. Yeah, I mean, generally, you don't want to be changing a lot throughout the experiment as you go. But on the other hand, you do definitely learn. And so having some flexibility to do that and to improve is, I think, a good thing. And I think the other thing that it, it may change is just, you know, there are details of the analysis where you learn things about, say, even the distributions of the outcomes. So as a concrete example of that, I think we pre-registered um, that we'd use the inverse hyperbolic sign. Uh, transformation for some of our outcomes because we thought logs would be bad because of some zeros, but it turns out that the IHS also has some issues with having, if you have a lot of mass at zero in terms of the transformation and what it does to the point estimates relative to just the raw analysis. And I think now we know that. <laughs> um, and so we'll probably present both, but you want to have some flexibility to adjust for things that you couldn't have known well in advance, even with the very extensive piloting that we did in the study. It turned out that the data from the full experiment just looked a bit different. And when you ran it at scale, it's useful to, to be able to make some of those adjustments based on, on what you end up finding in the process as well. So that I think as long as referees and editors are open to that and are able to kind of take the pre-registration as something that is a starting point and that you should be reasonably bound to, but adjust when there are good reasons to make those adjustments. I think it's a good process, but it does require kind of both sides to generate an equilibrium that, that people will want to participate in those. Mm -hmm. Thanks, that. And you did run a couple of different treatments in the end. So you gave people devices that helped them sleep and you allowed them to take a nap in the afternoon. And I think you also paid some people to sleep more. Which treatments, how did you in the end deci uh, decide on which of these treatments to run? I'm sure you had many more ideas for different things you could have done. That's right. We did think through a lot of other options. So other things that were on the table were, for example, creating like a kind of hostel hotel type setting where people could come and sleep at the office um, or kind of, you know, a, a housing place that we would provide instead because we could provide a much better one than they have at home. We thought about a lot of other variants on the specifics of the types of interventions that we did. So one of the treatments, as you mentioned, was we give people devices in their homes to improve their home sleep. And we tried a lot of 
different devices for that. And really, it was just an iterative process and trying to figure out a combination of what seemed to actually increase sleep in a really effective way. And then also what was a clean design that we thought was relatively broadly applicable. So for example, we considered this bringing people in and having them sleep in a very different environment, but decided that might actually be very difficult to carry out. And it it certainly wasn't going to be a scalable intervention. And on the home sleep devices, as a concrete example of the types of confounds we considered, one thing that actually bothers people quite a lot in this environment is mosquitoes. And so we did consider giving out something like bed nets or mosquito coils. But in the end, we ended up dropping that as a part of the intervention because we were concerned it might also have direct health effects, given that mosquitoes carry quite a bit of disease in Chennai as well. So really, the decision on which treatments to run was a very iterative process of trying out different solutions and thinking through what seemed to be the best in terms of both the pure design features that you need to to make a clean study, but also the logistics of running that study in an effective way that might actually be something that could be used. Because the study actually is also in partnership with the government of Tamil Nadu. And they're interested not only in what are the results, but are there results that are something that are usable to them that could they could they integrate some of these things into policy? Earlier on, you mentioned that you did some piloting even before pre-interesting the experiment. And did you pilot some treatments that you then in the end decide not to run? I think small versions of them, yes. We didn't end up, for example, piloting this idea of you know having people come in and sleep in a given place because it just seemed logistically infeasible. But we did pilot things like mosquito coils and bed nets as a part of the intervention. And, you know, we didn't see a large gain in the amount of sleep that people were getting from it, but we did worry about it as a potential confound. And so in the end, we didn't end up including that. So I think there were many, many, many iterations. I think we piloted the study for three years, not only to to resolve many of these issues around ensuring that we could improve sleep, but also to make sure that we had a strong design for a lot of the experimental outcomes and the uh, typing task and the like as well. Um, It turns out they're just... In all studies, I think more design details than you anticipate and takes a while to resolve all of them, especially if it's a design where people have to be in the study for a little while in order to start to detect effects. So I think those types of things end up making the piloting process a fairly long one in many cases. You just mentioned you partnered with the local government for this experiment. Did you have like another local partner that handled the logistics and hiring of the people or did you hire people to do that? So we actually do have quite a few uh, local partners that we work with. Um, we've had a long-standing partnership with the Institute for Financial Management and Research, IFMR, um, and JPAL uh, that's hosted at IFMR as well um, for a number of our projects. So they really do their essential to our being able to administer these studies. And this partnership, uh, this study was also in partnership, as I said earlier, with the the Tamil Nadu state government. And that happened through an existing partnership between JPAL and the government collaborates with JPAL on studies where there's direct policy linkages as well. So our study um, and thinking about, you know, sleep a major concern and what might they do to address it, but also other studies. So for example, there are studies of things like rice fortification that also happen as a part of this collaboration. And I would say, I think it's a real credit to both sides of that partnership that it's been running and working so well. It was it was great to work with all of those institutions as a part of the study. And certainly we're, we're really grateful for the opportunity because it, it was incredibly helpful to actually making the study work effectively. And I guess more broadly, I guess I would add to that, you know, I would really recommend trying to find a local partner for running studies like this. 
there's quite a bit of local knowledge that's that's really important to running a study well, as well as the logistical benefits. And it's hard to do it without that linkage to the place. And do you have any advice for people who are maybe young researchers and are trying to do their first field trial in a developing country on how to find a local partner? My first piece of advice would be talk to your advisors. <laughs> they often have some of those linkages already. And the, using that relationship is a good way to get started fairly quickly. If that's not possible, then I would say really just be in that place and start talking to people. It's very hard to make relationships or form relationships from afar. And so if you really want to find a local partner, it's important to be there in person and just sit down, have coffee with people, talk with them about your goals, what they would want to get out of it, make sure it's a good match on both sides. But, but being there in person is really important to making the relationship uh, to both starting it and maintaining it, I think. And you already mentioned earlier that it took you almost three years of piloting um, before you started with the real main treatment. Um, could you walk us through the timeline that you had in mind when you started the project and how long you expected things to take? <laughs> It's now so long ago, I actually don't remember exactly what I thought at that point. I'm fairly certain I didn't think it would take the five years it actually took. My guess is I probably thought something closer to two to three. That said, I think as you run more and more of these studies, you start to realize it almost never actually happens in the timeline you expect. Um, really, each piece ends up taking longer than you expect by a bit. There were no huge barriers kind of that ever occurred that, you know, say stopped us for a year or something like that. But there were a lot of small things, you know, if you apply for more funding, you have to pause while you update the IRB, you have to try out a new treatment that you hadn't thought of before that came up as part of your piloting. And then each of those things just takes a little bit of time. And before you know it, it's taken a very long time. So I think it was definitely a longer timeline than we anticipated. But I think the project also grew over time. And, and that was part of what caused it. We probably originally started with a slightly more sparse design and then added more outcomes and the like over time. Thank you so much, Heather, for talking about this uh, project with me. And to conclude the interview, I would like to ask a couple of questions on how you work in general. First of all, could you describe a normal workday for you when you're not in the field, when you're in your office? Sure. Um, I'm not sure there is a necessarily a, a normal in this job, but it's, it's probably roughly what you would expect. I spend a fair amount of time on Skype calls with field teams. Most of my work is in India, and given the time difference, that usually either happens early in the morning or late at night. I spend time reading, writing, doing analysis, uh, at, at meeting with advisees and co-authors. So I think you know that each day is a little bit different, but typically some mixture of those various things. One thing that did surprise me as I moved out of grad school and into the assistant professor job was I still end up spending quite a bit of time on the minutia of the logistics of field work, dealing with finances, hiring, just kind of the day-to-day -day of some of these things. And I think I'm getting better at that. And more recently, we've had a set of stellar RMs to help to run the lab, which has helped a lot on that dimension. But certainly, I think there will always be some of that. And you know, so if students are thinking about doing field work, it's important to consider that and making the decision about doing field experiments, because there is it's not something that we focus on in grad school about the process, but it is certainly a part of the process and, and probably an important one as well. Okay, and when you're in the field, how does your day look like that? Do you have time to fully focus on the experiment or do you also write or work on other projects? In the field, I just focus on field work. Uh, I think there's 
less time than you would hope for field work, especially as you get more projects that are more spread out. And so, you know, I, I do generally just have, I probably go to India two or three times a year, each for a week or two at a time, which doesn't end up being a lot of time per project uh, in the end. And so I think you really do need to try to plan ahead and get as much done as possible in each visit because there, there never really seems to be enough time in the field to do everything you'd want. And certainly the time that I'm there, I, I spend very dedicated to the field portion of the work. So I think that tends to focus on seeing the projects in action, trying to detect issues that need to be addressed, which you just can't see from afar unless you're there in person. Also, it's a fair amount of time spending time with staff in person. I think those relationships are not only a nice part of the job, but also really essential to getting the studies to run well. So understanding kind of what are the things that don't come up on phone calls, but maybe a kind of making the study or generating concerns in the study or just making sure that, that everything's running well in terms of management and logistics as well. So I think those are, are both pretty important parts of that, that time abroad is focusing not only on the research itself, but also the, the people that are administering it and putting a lot of time into that while you're in the field. Thank you so much for the interview. Um, it was great to chat with you.